Okay, big news day today. Zillow has paused their iBuying business and they're trying to unload 7,000 homes they bought. Their stock is off 50% uh, this year. Bit of a disaster over at Zillow. Next up, the Biden administration has released their reports on stable coins. And so the noose is tightening on Tether and people like Circle. We had Jeremy Miller on the program recently who want to see the industry regulated and who want to be in compliance. I think that they are going to soar because of this. And I've got some conspiracy theories I float during that segment about what's going on with China and the US with their Fed coins and how they're both approaching the decapitation of crypto in China and the regulation of crypto here in the United States. You'll see if you believe my conspiracy theories. And then I'm having the founder of Lead IQ, May Xiao, on the program. We invested in this company back in 2015. They just closed a $30 million Series B. I invested in the company six or seven times trying my new betting strategy, which is keep betting on your winners. So we talked to May about her journey from being in our second accelerator cohort when she had two customers and 500 in revenue and then hitting eight figures in revenue and raising a huge round. She's a great entrepreneur, a really must listen for anybody in SaaS or anybody building a company. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by NordVPN, improving VPN services globally. Access content from over 59 countries and stay safe online. Go to nordvpn.com slash twist or use code twist at checkout to get 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months free. LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash twist. And Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. Okay, before we get to the news, I want to tell you a little bit about Foundry University. Hey, everybody, we're having one of our free two day online courses called Foundry University. This is a course I teach with my team here at launch and the syndicate our investment vehicles as well as with a bunch of other entrepreneurs and successful investors. We run Foundry University four times a year and our next class is on November 8th and 9th. Each day we'd start with some founder pitches, I usually take them with another investor, and we give very candid feedback on how the founder can make the presentation better, and what the tough questions they're going to get from other investors and why investors ask those questions. The rest of the programming is awesome. We highlight a ton of tactical talks on growth and fundraising, which are the two things founders tell us they need the most help on. So what do you need to raise a Series A is one of the talks. We talk about which marketing platforms you should invest in and which ones you shouldn't. And you'll get free legal advice on negotiating term sheets and on other legal issues you're going to face as a founder all for free. We're really happy to announce that our next one is our 20th Foundry University. And because it's online, you can join us from anywhere in the world. It might be late, it might be early, it might be the middle of the day, depending on where in the world you are. But we would love to have you stay up late or get up early to join us. It's an amazing way to meet other early stage founders and get to know our team as well. Uh, we create a slack room where you can all hang out, not just at this event, but for all time going forward. So a lot of friendships and co founderships have happened at Foundry University. And a number of the founders we've met 
have gone on to come to our accelerate. In fact, I would say, you know, between three and 5% of these companies, we wind up having an investment relationship with. So if you want to join us, you got to apply for this two day intensive course at founder.university. Uh, forgot to mention it's free. We don't charge you anything for it. Wilson, Sansini, Goodrich, and Rosati is our partner, as well as Vanta. So join us for the course. It's free, of course. All the courses we do for founders are free because we want to support you. And then hopefully, if you build a great company, maybe you'll think about it when it comes time to raise money. Okay, we look forward to seeing you at founder.university. All right, in our first news story today, shockingly, according to Bloomberg, Zillow has paused their eye-buying business and is trying to unload 7,000 homes to institutional investors for 2.8 billion. Zillow shares got decimated. It's down 11.5% on the news, dropping to $85 a share. They lost $2 billion in market cap. Uh, and Zillow is going to reduce its workforce by 25% over the next few months. So let's unpack what I buying is. If you haven't heard this term, it's an industry term in real estate. Basically, it means that a bunch of these websites that like Redfin and Zillow would buy homes to flip them. Just institutionalized buying of homes, single family homes specifically. So uh, Zillow ramped this up after buying about 700 homes in 2018. Uh, of course, there is the company Open Door uh, that Keith Raboy, friend of the pod, founded and that went public. IPOB was uh, Open Door, really clever idea. I had uh, Keith Raboy to talk about that company uh, years ago on the pod. Zillow offers homeowners the ability to request an offer on their house. Then they use an algorithm to generate the price. If that price is accepted, Zillow sends an inspector to confirm the status of the home. Zillow pays in cash uh, if the inspection checks out, and then they make repairs and put the property back on the market. And they were targeting like 4 or 5% at scale. Uh, obviously, as I said, Redfin and Open Door have similar programs. But on October 18th, Zillow put out a statement that Zillow offers would not be buying any more homes in 2021. They said, quote, due to a backlog in renovations and operational capacity constraints, they were going to stop the program. In other words, they bought homes that needed renovations. And uh, operational capacity to me means they weren't executing at a high level. And I heard this from the grapevine that uh, one of the things that iBuyers were doing was they were buying homes that they really didn't understand. In other words, let's say a home had noise at night because it was near, I don't know, a construction site and all the trucks came back. They might send an iBuyer out there, that person might sell it to you and there was negative signaling. In a market that is so vibrant like today with low interest rates, Home buyers are going to go look at 20 different homes, put offers in on three, and visit the top three homes three, four, five times, talk to the neighbors, do their research. I buyers, maybe they weren't doing this kind of research. They send out an inspector. The inspector says the house looks okay. They don't know that the people next door are renting in an Airbnb or that the people two doors down are maniacs who play, you know, heavy metal all night long or throw parties constantly. That's something that a local real estate broker, and listen, hey, I, I think real, real estate brokers get paid like huge commissions, and I'm not crazy about that, especially on the higher end homes. But to their defense, they do know which houses are dogs in the market. 
So there's a data advantage for Redfin, Opendoor, and Zillow, but they might not have the qualitative thing. So that's what I heard on the back end. And I don't think that that kind of news is out there. And I don't know that that's specifically true, but I suspect that has something to do with this. Because if the home was super high quality, it's the it's on the end of a cul-de-sac, it has a great view, I don't know, the lot's flat, all of that put together would make for a more educated buy, right? And then maybe Zillow became the buyer of last resort. We see something similar in negative signaling uh, in venture capital. You go to the top firms, they all say no. You go to the second tier firms, they all say no. Some new firm... Uh, meets the company, they don't have the reputation yet, they take a chance on a new firm that the other firms passed on or a new business model, and that could either work out for them, but in most cases, it wouldn't. And that's why reputation matters and inside information matters and network matters, all of those things add up to better decision making. So perhaps the issue here is Zillow made bad decisions. They thought through data that they would know because if there's estimates, you know, they can always tell you the uh, value of homes. And so in a 2006 uh, Zillow blog post, when they talked about Zestimates, and I've had uh, the marketing, the CMO from Zillow on the podcast previously, and she talked about uh, Zestimates, that was very controversial. Remember when that first came out where they used taxes and sales data to try to figure out how much your house was home? Well, maybe they got ahead of their skis here. Maybe they were too confident that they could make these decisions. So, you know, for the first 13 years, they were a marketplace and they just did lead gen, right? When you see brokers on the website, it says book this house with this broker. That's not the broker representing the house. That's somebody who paid for that placement. And if they get that person, a new client who's interested in the home, they get uh, paid for lead gen. And I don't know what it costs per uh, lead gen, but I'm thinking it's tens of dollars, a pretty good business. Do you want to increase your online security? Well, don't we all? If so, you need to hear about NordVPN. NordVPN offers a VPN that stands for Virtual Private Network with benefits such as helping customers stay safe online and you get to access content from over 59 different countries by changing your virtual location with just one click and you're never going to miss your favorite show again. This keeps you safe while using public Wi-Fi, which can be a goldmine for hackers. I tell you this because I have sensitive information. I use NordVPN to protect myself anytime. My phone, my iPad, my laptop, my Chromebook is out on the road. I need to protect myself. And I was in Italy. The girls wanted to watch something on Disney+. Plus. It was like, we don't have Disney+, Plus in Italy. Ah, boom, put my VPN on. We're back in the game. NordVPN has an amazing Cyber Month deal for my listeners, Twist listeners. It's amazing how affordable VPNs are. You can now get in the United States, I kid you not, NordVPN for about $3 a month. Go to Nord, N-O-R-D, VPN.com slash twist or use the code twist at checkout and you're going to get, I kid you not, 73% off your two-year plan plus a bonus gift. Just buy the two-year plan. This way, you don't have to worry about it. You need to be safe. And NordVPN is how you're going to do that. NordVPN.com slash twist. Uh, Zillow also started offering uh, adjacent services like mortgages. So, you know, they talked about the Zillow 1.0 where they got consumers to, you know, and connected them with professionals. But their Zillow 2.0 model, uh, as they presented it was, hey, we're going to help you shop, rent, buy, finance you know, all the adjacent services, sell your home, 
and, and just whip these two concepts together in some really ambitious flywheel. Uh, and then they opened this, you know, iBuying program. When Zillow launched their iBuying program in 2018, Glenn Kelman, friend of the pod, he was recently on episode 1261. I've offered, begged, asked the Zillow founder to come on the program 10 times. They offer me their number two or three person. Obviously, we're not going to do that. So I, I just don't think the Zillow founder likes me. Um, he says he doesn't have a problem with me because I asked him, <laughs> do you just not like me? <laughs> Why won't you come on the program? But I think it's media people don't like me, or maybe they think I'm going to ask questions that would be too sharp. And, you know, that's the nature of being an interviewer. If they don't like me, I'll just talk about them and uh, not tell their side of the story because they won't come on the program. It's kind of frustrating for me that they won't because I kind of respect the founder of Zillow. Not, not kind of, I do. And I, he's I got an incredible story. And he's been on other podcasts. So when I see a founder on other podcasts, and they won't come on this one. And I've asked them 10 times. At a certain point, I just give up and I've kind of given up on the CEO of Zillow ever coming on this program. And I just assume it's because I said something in the past that maybe was too sharp elbowed and we'll just have their competitors on. Glenn loves to come on. Other people, uh, Keith Raboy loves to come on and we'll tell the story of real estate without the CEO. And not that I'm bitter or anything. I'm a little bitter about it. Uh, I'm kind of bummed about it. I kind of, should I take that personal? I don't know. I kind of take it personal when somebody doesn't want to come on. Like Palmer Lucky doesn't want to come on the program because I said something about Oculus or something in the past. Um, or when he left Facebook, but I, I would love, I think Palmer's like a fascinating guy. I'd love to have a conversation with him. So the CEO of Redfin then, uh, in who was on episode 1261, great guest. Glenn Kleilman has been on this program, friend of the pod. He's been on a half dozen times. He is awesome. He spoke with the New York times and warned about the dangers of pouring money into homes quote, without having a clear idea of how you're going to make money on almost every single home. If that happens, he said, you're just putting the housing markets, the capital markets at some degree of risk. And this is the criticism of Zillow was like, we're in a housing crisis for some giant company to start taking homes off the market. Same criticism of Open Door. It was like these iBuyers are, are exacerbating the housing crunch. So I think that might be a little bit of it too. Maybe Zillow realizes this is a tough business and you become hated. Maybe regulations will come like the government will intervene because of it. So according to Bloomberg's reporting, Zillow is looking to sell about 7000 homes to other institutional investors to get them off their books. Uh, again, the number of those $7,000, 7000 homes is 2.8 billion. Uh, Zillow's current market cap is 21 billion. That's a uh, down 50% from their peak valuation of 48 billion in February of 2021. So Zillow has lost half of its value. Wow. Uh, in a year. And uh, no, I'm sorry, they've lost half their value since February of this past year in six months. Wow. According to research firm Yipit Data, I've never heard of that firm, Zillow put a record number of homes on the market back in September, but it appears they are not being sold at a profit. According to a study of 650 Zillow owned homes done by KeyBank Capital Markets, two thirds were priced for less than the company bought them for. So Zillow is going to take a big write off here. Obviously, this is a huge mistake, a blunder. Uh, but what I will say is, uh, no risk, no reward. So while it's easy to kick Zillow when they're down here, they took a bold bet. What if it paid off? And it's a minor, uh, charge for a company that's worth 21 billion to take a $500 million or a billion dollar charge. I, I would rather see a company taking big, bold bets like this than not taking them. You got to take bets in business. You got to keep shooting for growth. Uh, and so. 
Zillow did pause buying before all this back in March 23 and 2020. Uh, when the COVID state orders kicked off, they quickly sold off as well. So I think that this is a great learning experience, period, end of story. And uh, good on Zillow for trying. And maybe they just think their other model, or they have another concept they want to iterate on. But, you know, they bought houses for 400k. And uh, on average, if you take the 2.8 billion and divide it by 7000. That's the mean, not the median. So I don't know what the most common home price is. But it looks like they bought first time buyer homes, starter homes, which is smart, because that's what the world needs more of. But uh, it's hard to do everything and boiling the ocean is hard. I think maybe open door, since they only do one thing, uh, maybe they'll be successful at this where Zillow uh, had a harder time with it. Also, I think maybe Zillow looked at their existing business model. And maybe they were pissing off real estate brokers, right? Maybe this was creating too much tension of them being the owner and seller. Because if they're the seller, well, then they're fighting against other sellers in the market. So let's think this through in a gamesmanship theory, or game theory, which I'm not an expert on. But if you're the agent representing a home, and you are a seller's agent, you are selling to Zillow, which means when they sell it, because they're flipping it, you don't get the chance to represent that home again. So every time you sell a home to Zillow, by definition, you're removing a piece of inventory where you sell it to any I buyer, you remove a piece of inventory that you'll be able to represent in the future. And many times I think you've probably seen this, a real estate broker will represent the same home two or three times. I know, uh, when we bought our home, one of our homes, uh, we then um, tried to sell it with one agent, it didn't sell. And then we went back to the agent. Uh, and said to the agent who sold it to us, hey, you sold this home before you're you know, the home, would you like to sell it again? And so I think that that's a, a strategy that would then make selling agents not want to work with Zillow. So then maybe the selling agents were trying to offload bad inventory to Zillow to sink them. It's kind of like a very clubby thing, these uh, real estate brokers, I think, everybody knows when you are in the process of selling a home, the brokers in many cases, are working with each other, some might say colluding, others might say facilitating, it could be just facilitating uh, most of the time and sometimes colluding to try and get the buyer and seller to just, you know, uh, do a transaction by any means necessary. Because remember, the incentive is to close any transaction, it doesn't matter what the price is, you just got to sell it The price doesn't matter, right? If they sell a home for if they're 6%, if you sell the home for a million dollars, you make 60. You sell it for 900 or you sell it, you sell it for two for 900 or 1.1, which is a 10%, 20% swing in prices there. It doesn't really affect their commission. It's still going to be plus or minus 10% of 60,000. It'd be 54 to 60, uh, 6,000, right? So it doesn't really matter. The commission of 54 to 66 being split two ways doesn't matter. Any number in there is good. Okay. And, you know, some of you might know who are listening to the podcast that every day or four days a week, I record these uh, newscasts live, and I just got in a great question from one of the Nodi Gang members. And uh, the Nodi Gang member, Jeff, says, J. Cal, do you think I buy is a fundamentally unworkable idea, or did they not just execute well? I'd say it's the latter. I think it is uh, a hard business. It's an operational business to be in, and you have to be relentlessly focused, making sure every single home 
is a tier one top tier home, not a home uh, that is a dog. And Keith Raboy uh, had a, a note about this uh, just uh, recently saying selling or shorting open door due to Zillow's flaws and is akin to shorting Google due to Yahoo's inability to monetize search well or return long tail queries properly. And I think he's probably correct. If you look, Yahoo was doing 20 different projects, and search was one of them. And Google was doing one project search, and they were just 100 times better than or maybe 10 times better than anybody in the market at that time, maybe they're 20 times better now. So focus matters in startups. And this seems to be like food delivery, uh, or Airbnb, an operationally intensive business and in operationally intensive businesses, ones that exist in the real world, you just got to have a really sharp blade. You cannot be fighting five wars on five fronts in this kind of a situation. You just got to do one thing better than anybody. So I would be long open door. And actually, I'd be, you know, for doing I buying, and I would be long Zillow for getting back to their original model and just owning that one. So lick your wounds, you get knocked down six times, you get up seven, Zillow will be fine. Uh, and that's my way of trying to get the founder and CEO to come back on the podcast. <laughs> which probably won't happen. We love you, Rich. <laughs> come on the pod. Everybody do me a favor who's listening. If you know Rich, tell him to come on the pod. He's got so many great startups that he's done and he's friends with like 10 of my friends, Bill Gurley, everybody. Come on the pod. I'm not going to bite. Don't send your number two or number three. I mean, I'll, I'll take your number two or number three person after you come on the pod. I'm like willing to horse trade that way, but I'm not horse trading up. No. Not at this point in my career. I'm not worth trading up. I'm not having your VP or president on in order to get the CEO. I'll get the CEO and then maybe as a favor down the road, have the president on. I think I'm cool with that. But I'm not horse trading up. I'll horse trade down. All right. Next story. Right now, LinkedIn is going to give you a $100 credit towards your first ad campaign. All you have to do is go to LinkedIn.com slash this week in startups. One word, no spaces, no dashes. We all know why you want that hundy because you need high quality leads for your startup, for your business. Every startup founder, every marketer has been there before. You're launching some new campaign. The creative is amazing. Your team is excited. Everything is going according to plan, except you got that thought in the back of your head. It's keeping you up at night. How can I be sure that my acquisition campaign is going to drive the high impact leads that my sales team needs? They got to hit their targets. They need the leads. Well, with LinkedIn ads, you don't need to guess because you're going to be able to advertise on LinkedIn where your message reaches people who are ready to engage in business. LinkedIn equals business. Business equals LinkedIn. Business LinkedIn, same thing in people's minds. With 30 million companies engaging and over 71% of professionals using LinkedIn to inform their business decisions, LinkedIn can help you bring the growth at your company to the next level. Don't wait to start achieving your brand and lead gen goals. Get $100 a hundy in ad credits towards your first LinkedIn campaign at linkedin.com slash this week in startups. Once again, that's linkedin.com slash this week in startups for the hundy terms and conditions, of course, apply. Okay, we've been waiting for this on Monday, the Biden administration released a report on stable coins, which recommended that Congress act quickly to regulate them. We knew this report was coming. And I have to say, uh, kudos to the Biden administration 
for getting on top of the crypto market and starting to think about what the downstream ramifications could be of delaying regulations and having unclear regulations. Delaying means there could be a big hole if something blows up and that could create a contagion or it could be a black swan like event. That's what delaying has done to us. We should have had this stuff during the Trump administration. I'm not saying that, you know, this is a left versus right thing, because I actually don't think it is. But I do think that this wasn't a focus for the Trump administration. It seems to be a focus for the Biden administration for some reason. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. So delaying is really bad. Because this is growing so quickly that delaying that's like delaying doing a building inspection till they put the hundredth floor on the building. Like you really need to do the building inspection when they're putting the foundation in, right? Does that make sense? So now we have these giant skyscrapers and we don't know what's going on in the foundation. And God forbid they, they didn't build a proper foundation. The whole thing could come tumbling down. Second, unclear regulation means people are going to take crypto companies and put them in the Zerg or Panama or other places and other jurisdictions that basically inoculate them from regulations or exacerbate bad behavior. And that then makes it hard for people to believe in the crypto space. So uh, there were a number of groups who worked on this, a, a bunch of different acronyms, the PWG, President's Working Group on Financial Markets, FDIC, you know, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the OCC, the Office of Controller of the, of the Currency, I've never heard of that one. And so if you just want to understand stable coins, we're somewhere around 140 billion of these and the trading volume uh, is something like 780 billion according to CoinGecko. Again, that's just a source I can't validate how good that source is. But the total crypto market, according to CoinGecko and some of these other sites is something like 2.8 trillion. Now that number isn't real. Because that doesn't mean that you could sell all those coins and get $2.8 trillion. You know that when you start a program, let's say I own 50% of the coins and the coins start getting bought over the next two years and they go up 10,000%, 100,000%, right? They go up 1,000x, whatever it is. Those 50% of coins, were they never transacted, right? So this is why sometimes these market caps are fugazi or not representative of reality. Solana comes to mind. This thing has gone up super quick. If everybody who owns Solana at a penny tried to sell it now at $100, it, it would the market would tank and go back down to a dollar, which wouldn't be enough buy side. So these are very weirdly traded uh, currencies. When you it's the equivalent of in the stock market when you have a small float, right? If you had 90% of people were the insiders who owned a company and only 10% was being traded by the public. How representative is it if you're only trading 10% if that other 90% suddenly came on the market would the price collapse in all likelihood it would unless it was such a great company that people uh, really wanted to own it. But even in that case, the supply would outstrip the demand in all likelihood. So stable coins are somewhere maybe five or 10% of the market depending on how real that $2.8 trillion number is. So the report, uh, and I perused it, uh, I didn't read the whole thing yet, was pretty favorable uh, about the applications of stablecoins. Quote from the report's press release, stablecoins could be more widely used in the future as a means of payment by households and businesses. That's an incredible uh, statement. The government really shouldn't want stablecoins being used instead of US dollars 
So they're saying like, that's a possibility. In other words, like maybe you'll pay your phone bill, or your mortgage in stable coins, because they reduce bank fees. That's the big thing here. The banks have this big infrastructure, they're regulated, they have high costs, they have high fees, they're slow, they're only open a certain number of hours a day, you've sent a wire, you've been through this nonsense, stablecoins just boom, you, you send them, they basically free to send, they're like poker chips, they, they are very easy to transact with. Now, the US government is going to need to have a US dollar that can trade like stablecoins eventually, but the banking industry has no interest in doing that because that would break their monopoly on money transfer and make it harder for them. So I think we all understand what's going on here. You got these rebels and stable coins. And then on the other side, you've got regulated banks. And uh, this report says, hey, listen, we need to have centralized legislation for this. And you know what, who can disagree with that, given the bad behavior, and given all the fines piling up, and all the fear, uncertainty and doubt about tether, hashtag tether investigation. So some quotes from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the absence of appropriate oversight presents risks to users and the broader system. That's pretty obvious. I think everybody agrees with that. Current oversight is inconsistent and fragmented with some stablecoins effectively falling outside of the regulatory perimeter. Again, you don't really need much evidence of this. We had Jeremy Lair on the program, and he's trying to figure out how do I do this with the highest level of uh regulation and and compliance i would say compliance so jeremy lair was on this program tethers folks warrant that tells you everything you need to know because i asked jeremy as hard a questions as i could and he came on the program he said he'd come on the program and he did he wants to see regulation and he wants uh to have clarity about that as i started off with the segment you really want to have clarity if you're a good actor why do you want to have clarity and regulation as a good actor because it gets rid of bad actors who might be cutting corners. Who is the canonical example of the bad actor in this? Clearly, it's Tether. And I don't have to worry about getting sued because Tether is banned from working with citizens and companies in New York. They've been banned. So they are bad actors, according to New York State. They are bad actors, according to the Canadian regulators, because they won't let them trade. And they just got a huge fine of over $40 million. The company, obviously, Tether is a big part of this. People saw Tether go up to $70 billion. And although people who use Tether feel comfortable with it, I think it would be more comfortable for society writ large and for the industry to have this highly, highly regulated. Specifically, the report called for Congress to address these three following concerns. Number one, risk to stablecoin users regarding stablecoin runs or bank runs. Basically, make sure that all stablecoins are fully backed. So if people started pulling money out of Tether, is the money there? Well, if Tether says they have low single digits of actual cash, and then all this like Fugazi, potentially Fugazi, unknown commercial paper, which are loans to companies, and they said they have them in China, but maybe not Evergrande, it's just too much risk. So stable coins should be dollar for dollar backed, no funny business. Why do people do funny business like Tether? The theory is they want to get a higher return. So if you agree your coin is worth a dollar, you give me the dollar. If I go invest that dollar in something that's paying 20% a year, I sweep the 20% return on your dollar. Now, 
if I put in something safe, and I only make 1% on it or 50 bips, half a percent. Okay, I left the other 19, 19.5% of returns, I'm not going to make as much money. So there is a perverse incentive for stablecoin, uh, people running stablecoins to make risky bets. But that's not what the buyers of stablecoin want. They don't want you making risky bets. If they did, they would have bought Bitcoin or Ethereum to begin with, which are risky bets that swing. So it's supposed to not swing. Number two, concerns about payment system risk. Basically, the report recommends that stablecoin wallet providers, think Coinbase, uh, Robinhood, whoever, be held to the same standards as stablecoin issuers like Circle. Seems fair. If you're going to be, you know, holding these in wallets, you're going to need to know who the buyer is, you're going to need to maybe have some insurance on it, etc. And then point three concerns about uh, systemic risk and concentration of economic power, they want to ensure that no stablecoin or wallet issuer develops a monopoly. How do you do that? Well, according to the report, legislation should be able to limit stablecoin issuers affiliation with commercial entities. In other words, no sweetheart deals between circle and Coinbase. Uh, so if you if Coinbase accepts circle, they got to accept every other stablecoin that is regulated. That, that makes sense to me. Um, I would even take this a bit further, which is stable coins can grow at a certain rate or hit a certain percentage market share. So if we know there are 150 billion, why don't they say, you know, for your stable coin, you can be no more than 50% of the market. I know that that seems anti capitalism that the best company should win. But we kind of want a diversity of providers here. So if any one of them goes bad, they don't take down the whole system. And you know, the market may very much want to have a monopoly because monopolies is, you know, kind of how you reward the winner. So this is a very delicate concept here to say, not that we're going to pick the winner, but we're going to pick the percentage the winner can have. That is a controversial concept. But it is how uh, some countries deal with monopolies. What percentage can the winner have? Korea does this as my understanding with like SK Telecom could have a certain percentage of the mobile market. Supervisors should have authority to promote their interoperability among stable coins. That makes sense. Uh, and finally, limits on the use of users transaction data. I don't know exactly what that means. But maybe it means like using it to upsell them. Uh, unclear what that means. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps in being a great entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than a broker in getting great insurance that will protect you and your team and your vision and your investors and your board members. Here's how Imbroker works. Their technology saves you a ton of time and a ton of money. Prices are up to 20% lower and they have better coverage than the incumbents because they use technology. You know the story. So you can go from sign up to a quote and to purchase in just 10 minutes. So when you work with Imbroker, instead of those incumbents, you're not dealing with large, slow corporations. And the sign up takes just a couple of days, not these weeks or months that I've experienced in the past. And the process is transparent with no opaque pricing. So I'll explain two crucial types of insurance that you need to know about. Cyber insurance. This is obvious. It covers hacks. That happens all the time. You just don't hear about it. And DNO insurance. This helps you if directors, people on the board, or officers, and the C-suite, the top 10, 5, 10 people at a company, do something really dumb, and then you get sued. Here's your call to action to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups. I want you to go to imbroker.com slash twist. E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R dot com slash twist. Imbroker.com slash twist.
And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off if you use the offer code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. That stands for This Week in Startups. Okay, thanks, and broker. Great job. This is great for crypto. If crypto is too big to not be regulated, crypto is too big for there not to be some rules of the road, and we have to get the bad actors out of crypto. Tether is a bad actor. Clearly, if the CEO won't come on this program or won't go on CNBC, they're bad actors, period, end of story. You can't be CEO of a company that has $70 billion in assets and not go on major programs or talk to the press or be in hiding or be, you know, in Hong Kong or some authoritarian country, and then do business with the rest of the world. If anybody's a bad actor, they should be banned from working with any US entity period end of story. Tether should be banned from working with any US regulated entity as quickly as possible until they are audited. All of these services need to be audited. They should not be allowed to operate or grow until they're audited. If you're not audited at a billion dollars, let alone 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, then you're just not worthy of our trust. And if people outside the US would like to have an untrusted system, you know what that says to me? Who wants an untrusted system? People probably who have money that they're washing or they don't want other people to track, i.e., the black market. One of the things I've heard that's good about crypto and might be a conspiracy theory of why governments are allowing this kind of behavior, in other words, unregulated exchanges, unregulated tethers of the world, stable coins, is because the bad actors, in other words, dark money, you know, you know, the dark economy, the underground economy, human trafficking, terrorism, drugs, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> just people who are money laundering, gambling, uh, all that stuff could be being washed in crypto. Regulators are watching that regulators have tapped into that and have ways to track it, right? Because there are ways to track it. And when they see those transactions, they're finding out who those people are, they're finding the dark money, they're finding out what wallets these things wind up into, and they're going to just keep busting people and getting information, just like, you know, the uh, Southern District of New York had microphones and informants and tapped did wiretaps for years before busting the New York mob. They understood everything about the New York Mafia by the time they busted him in the 80s and into the 90s. That could be what's going on here. And then also, if all this money from the underground starts to get into crypto, and then you tax crypto, well, that would be a way for the government to get their hands and start taxing illegal revenues. So those are just two theories that some insider floated with me that I thought seemed credible. Whenever I tell you something that I think is a theory, a hypothesis, or a back channel, I'll present it as such on the podcast, right? I'm not telling you that this is a fact. And just like when I mention somebody who gives a statistic, I'm always going to tell you if I think that is a real statistic, or I know the source, or if you should trust it, right? I think in all news, you have to assume the information is incorrect, or could be massaged or might have an agenda and start try to triangulate around what the truth is and just think from a first principles basis. Could somebody be allowed to have $70 billion? under management and not be audited? <laughs> First principles, no. You just It's too big of a footprint. Too many people can get hurt. You know, would you let somebody have $10 million in some crazy cockamamie NFT, you know, platform? Sure, if it's in a sandbox and, you know, the, the amount of fraud that could occur and the worst possible situation would be 10 million would be lost. 
you do have to think about that, right? Uh, it's it's like speeding. If somebody's going 15 miles over the speed limit, do you pull them over if you're a police officer? Probably not. If there's people going 30 and 40 and 50 miles over the speed limit, you probably want to address those first. If you only have a certain number of people you can pull over a day, you want to start with the people going over 100, then people over 90, and then people over 80. And that's why I set my Tesla to be speed limited at 80, because then at 76, it starts warning me, hey, dude, pump the brakes. Okay, what other types of crypto regulation would I like to see? Well, I, you know, I've talked about this many times, uh, and I just referenced it. Let's create a staged sandbox here in the United States where you can file with some agency and say, I'm doing a crypto project. It might be a security, it could be a utility token. And under 5 million, experiment all you want. People buying into it, sign a waiver. They understand that this is an experiment. And there's, you know, at least three people's name on it, an accounting firm and a lawyer who certifies something about the project. Uh, then when it's or maybe like it's just the three founders sign off on it when it's 25 million. Now you have to have an attorney and an accounting firm sign off on it. You have to agree to do a monthly PL, know your customers have a database or transactions, whatever it is. And then when you get past 50 or 100 million, you become fully regulated. Something like that to me, sounds like a way to combine what the Zerg and other uh, crypto free states or you know, open trade zones are doing. And we kind of want to have that here in the United States. So let's create an open trade zone based on the scale of a project. You release $5 million in tokens, you're good. Just put your names on it, make sure you incorporate it, have $5 million in insurance that costs 50,000 a year. You get to 25 million, the insurance goes up, you got to have an accountant and a lawyer. And you, know, you got to do some sort of auditing. And you just scale it from there. So good job for the Biden administration on this one. I don't agree with them on everything, obviously. Um, but I think what we're seeing here is the CDBC is coming. We're going to have to have a central bank digital currency, just like China. China's approach has been to kick out cryptocurrencies and make them illegal. So they could have the renminbi, the digital renminbi. Uh, and they're forcing people before the Olympics, like McDonald's, to accept it. And then... The Fed coin will come here in the United States. How is the United States going to do it? They're going to regulate it. And don't be surprised if they tax it next. So a very simple thing to do for these stable coins is if you want to track in a stable coin, every time you send a stable coin from one place to another, you pay 1% or 10 bips in a tax to the government. That would then disadvantage people from using those. It would pay for regulation. It could be some sort of you know, uh, crypto tax, as it were, and then that would incentivize people to use our Fed coin. I'm not saying I endorse that. But I can tell you with 100% certainty, the government is not going to give over the sovereignness uh, of the uh, dollar to crypto, they're going to tax it, they're going to regulate it, that's going to create costs, and it's going to slow things down. It will create friction. And that friction will then drive people to the Fed coin. That's my personal cynical belief of what's going on here. China, you don't have to have a cynical belief about it. They just cut the head off crypto. Get the get the Bitcoin mines out of here. It's illegal for you to trade crypto, you can own it for now. But yeah, you know, you're going to use the digital renminbi. And that's it. Game over. All right, let's move on. All right, next up on the program is a founder I met just over five years ago. And she came to our accelerator, the launch accelerator, uh, when we were doing our second class. Back then, we called it an incubator. 
not an accelerator because we were accepting companies that were very nascent. My concept was, let's find some new uh, founders. Maybe they have a product. Maybe they've got an MVP. And May had sent me a very simple uh, plugin for Google Sheets. Plugin was pretty pretty uh, neat because what it did was I could take my list of everybody coming to the launch festival, an event we were doing, and I could enrich the data. What does it mean to enrich it? Well, I could put in the email address and her software would go out and find information about that person based on their email, just like you can do. You can find somebody's Twitter handle, Facebook, maybe some crunch-based profiles, whatever. And I thought, wow, this is a really interesting product. And at the time, I think Lead IQ was making under $1,000 a month. And I thought, wow, this founder is so smart. Uh, I got to invest in her company. Well, it's been five years, and I'm happy to announce that the company blew past $10 million in revenue and recently raised their uh, Series B of $30 million. And uh, she's been on the program a couple of times, but we haven't told the whole story because we've been so busy uh, building companies. Welcome back to the program, May. Thank you, Jason. Really good to have um, to to really have you support us through all of these years. So really, really appreciate it. Uh, well, it's been a, it's been a, it's an honor and a privilege, obviously, uh, and it's great to see how much you've gotten done in a short period of time. Let's go back to those early days. You were trying to figure out some way uh, to help people who had contacts, and eventually the product uh, really started to help people source contacts for SDRs, sales development reps. And over time, this became a SaaS product and revenue started to really break out. You were incredibly capital efficient, I think in part because you had a hard time raising money. Uh, if I remember correctly, you you'd raised before this round, maybe $12 million, but going to the board meetings, you'd only spend about 6 million of it. Tell, tell uh, the audience, what does the product do today? And about that product market fit journey and how you found this great uh, product and service and conceived of it. Yeah, certainly. So as you mentioned, we started out as an enrichment product, right? Um, as an enrichment product, we focus more on inbound leads. So people come to us, this is my leads, and help us enrich it so we can prioritize better who are all these people. And then soon after, we realized that most companies' problem are not uh, are not just like enriching inbound leads, but they simply just do not have enough inbound leads. Mm -hmm. They want more leads. That's how we uh, basically start, started out on our journey today, which is how can we help companies with prospecting to help them getting more leads? Because not if if people um, don't know about your existence don't know that you exist, they will not come to you. But really, as most companies have to go out there and educate people about your company, about your product and services. That's how we evolved and we started helping companies to get out there and build up their outbound prospecting motion. And outbound prospecting is actually not easy. It's um, a lot of co early companies actually give up doing it because it takes time to build up the strategy and it takes a long-term um, investment to actually get return on, on investment on that. Hmm. So we evolve um, by focusing more on the SDR, sales development reps workflow, and what do they need to do in order to um, improve, 
improve their productivity in reaching out to people and as well as syncing all of their leads towards CRM and making their day-to-day workflow more productive. So our product started out being sold to SMB, small and medium businesses. But over the years, we realized that the larger companies have actually more complicated workflow mm. because you have to research your companies um, and your leads more and more um, extensively. Typically, larger companies, you already have a set of customers and you have a target accounts. That's how we evolve um, from being a simple lead enrichment to a lead prospecting platform. And now, basically, we are um, optimizing reps workflow in helping their, your, their top of the funnel platform strategy. How do you prioritize your accounts? How do you prioritize your leads? And how do you basically um, deploy more productivity and intelligence on top of like producing this leads pipeline? And you know, SaaS, when you started, wasn't taken super seriously. Sales tools were just getting started. Um, but man, SaaS has become a really amazing business model. Tell me what you've learned about the SaaS business model uh, and why it's doing so well in the world in your mind. Why is it great to be a SaaS founder for people who are wondering, who are founders who are going to start a company and they're thinking, should I do SaaS? Should I do consumer? What What is the challenge of running a SaaS business? But what also, what is the delightful part of it? Certainly. I think what's wonderful about SaaS and why investors love SaaS is that once you find product market fit and you have these stable customers who are buying your companies, it's a repeatable revenue. And as long as you have a great retention number and you don't have a, a large churn, this space will keep growing as soon as you are growing it. If you don't have product market fit and you have a large churn, then that's when the number doesn't grow. But once you establish your base, you have a platform, people love using your product and you don't have churn. As, as, as you grow, this revenue will grow. Unlike mm. traditional businesses where you'll have fluctuations in revenue, mm. because if it's not a subscription, it's not software as a service, right? Then sometimes it's more like a um, seasonal business or it's project. It's pretty hard to predict what's your growth year over year. But with SaaS, there's a couple of metrics number that you can use to easily forecast and predict what you would be as soon as you continue consistently growing those numbers. I want to get to that magic number in a second. Uh, but before we get there, how long did it take Lead IQ and for you and the team to figure out that you had product market fit and you didn't have a leaky bucket? Because I can remember in the board meetings, there was some churn. There were different customer segments that were growing. There were ones that were constantly churning. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you've learned running that part of the business and making sure you don't have a leaky bucket. Certainly. I think that the important part here is, as you mentioned, segmenting the customers. So we do have the segment of the customers, the small, medium business that churn um, faster because the small, medium businesses typically do not have their outbound processes as completely figured out yet. So that's where we find better product market fit in the mid-market segment. And we start Mm. moving up market and focusing the larger customers because they have figured out outbound process. They have a bigger brand. They know how they are selling outbound and then they just need to scale it as Mm. well as their um, productivity is more important to them. They're willing to pay for it and their workflow for the rep is more complicated. 
to them, it's more important to chase this revenue growth rather than just saving costs. Got it. So that's how we are able to oh the to focus our resources once we realize that the mid market segment is the more um the segment that doesn't churn as well mm. as we can grow that faster. We start shifting all of our resources, go to market sales resources towards like chasing the that segment, and that's how we can grow faster. But you had to pause at a certain point, look at the customer base and start putting them into those buckets. It just doesn't happen organically that your database tells you, hey, here's your segments. You had to slow down for, I don't know, six months or a year, you, you tell me, and say, okay, let's put people into buckets. Let's study them. This infrastructure that you put in to actually understand the customers and then understand retention by when they signed up for the product and you know how big of a company it was. Um, how long did it take for you to set up that infrastructure? I think it takes us years. And to be honest, we're not there yet today. It's mm, still still work to do. It's still work to do. We ha- we still have to do a lot of manual Excel pooling, um, pivot table on the fly. Ideally, um, companies should invest in this so that you have a real-time dashboard that makes it easy. Mm. But as you mentioned in the early days, right, it's between analyzing versus executing. So for us, um, we are finally now trying to actually build out our BI and analytics team. But up to now, it's a little bit more of a ad hoc projects. So um, where we will just pull all the number and then try to slice and dice it. We are pretty fortunate that we actually um, have a pretty analytical team. And I think we actually also hire a consultant that help us look through some of this data, figuring out the strategy. And then that's how um, we are able to like come, come together. Like this segment is the segment that um, we should be chasing after. But yes, you are totally right. Every team should actually take a step, take a step back, figure out the strategy, and then align the team over that because that change management takes time to implement as well. As soon as we go, we decide, let's go after the mid-market team. We have mm. to change comp- compensation plan. We need mm. to actually incentivize the sales team to go after the mid-market team differently because otherwise they'll keep going after ah. the SMB segment because it's easier for them. So ah. how do we think through that, right? What's the comp looks like? And it's a, it's a change management that's actually impacting every department, um, product. And then what do we do with this SMB? If they come in, we still want them to close business, but we don't want anyone to talk to it, to talk to them. So we are actually having to change product to allow self-service mm. easier. We're not turning them down, but we do not want sales team to actually go after them. Got it. So if they're spending a small amount of money and they're going to be high maintenance, you can buy the product, but you've got to be self-service. You order it, you use it, but we're not putting people on the phone or sending them to your office. And then you've got to say, hey, to the sales team, I know that it's easy to close this, you know, very small customer, but we need you to go after the big sustainable customers who, let's face it, won't go out of business as easily. And maybe they're growing. Uh, and, and that works out better. What is the magic number you referenced earlier and those magic numbers that you as a SaaS CEO think about? For us, it's basically, if you can get to that negative retention, find a segment of customers that not only not churn, but they're actually growing with you. Got it. So once you find that segment of customers who keep adding users and they're actually growing with you such, such that the uh, retention is a net negative number, then those are the segment that we are going after. 
So where the SMBs might churn, they cancel their product. There's another group of people that are growing and they start with 10 seats for the product and they're paying X amount per month times 10. And then the next month it might be 15 and the next year it might be 150. And not only do they not go away, they start buying more from you. So instead of coming to your restaurant once a year, they start coming once a month and then once a week. And the next thing you know, you're catering their lunch at their office. Uh, those are the better customers to go after. But when you have a sales team, man, nurturing that long account might take a lot more time, correct? That's right. And that's why I think about three years ago, we started an account management team as well. Hmm. What does it mean versus sales? So sales is going after new logos mm -hmm. or new businesses, while the account management team takes, um, takes over the, the customers once they've been closed and they keep touching them and trying to grow them into mm. like different departments and making sure that they're happy, they're successful at the same time, educating the rest of the company that's not using the product yet to be mm. learning about the product and making that opportunity to expand um, higher. It's a very competitive space. How do you keep the product sharp? And how do you deal with a competitive marketplace for enrichment, contacts, sales tools, etc? You're, you're not going into this without competition. You, you come up against different competitors at different times. So how do you keep the product sharp in that way? That's a very good question. I mean, you, you nailed it right in the beginning. Like we have to be nimble and capital efficient part of it. This is a very competitive space. It was pretty hard to waste money. And so we just had to find money from customers, right? Um, we're doing that by continually listening to customers. What is that that they are needing? And we try to continually finding a niche, mm. knowing that there are so many other competitors doing something similar. By listening to customers, what is it that you are not yet um, satisfied with? What pain points you don't have? And it, so I think for us, we are focusing more on the workflow and making sure that that top of the funnel workflow is really, really good on our part. And we realize that there are so many other players there, but no one is really focusing on top of the funnel workflow. And mm. by focusing on that niche, we are able to appeal to a niche segment of the users, um, satisfy and meet their pain points in being able to like basically get them to be happily using us. Mm. And basically our strategy is simple, just like find an area that no one else is doing well, rather than competing head, competing head to head with other people. Because there's so many players trying to solve this from many different angles. We're finding one angle that no one has been doing it. Though, as the company grows bigger, this is the part where we'll need to start competing with the other players, right? Because there's so, only so much budget in the sales space. But the space is so big and there's so many um, pain points today that there's enough room for many players doing different, different pieces today. However, if this continue growing, if we continue going to be $1 billion company, that's when the market will need to consolidate, right? But we are starting out in the early days, find a niche where there are no one else to solving that. Tell me about fundraising for the company, because we got to witness the inception of the company. I think we put 25 or 50K in at the start of the accelerator. You had no money. You had no employees, maybe two people. Um, and then slowly we watched you grow into a couple of million dollar valuation, 10, 15, 40. And then now I think it's public knowledge over $200 million. Um, it was hard to raise money in the beginning. 
Um, how much, uh, what, how much do you attribute that to being a female founder, maybe who's, you know, not from America, uh, versus, you know, first time you were actually a second time founder, because you did have a startup before this. I don't right. you had a startup before this. And then before that Oracle, if I remember correctly, it's where you worked at a startup. It, yeah, I think I would consider this is my first startup. You can say your first one. Yeah. Yeah. That other one was just very brief thin. Um, yeah. Like, so did you feel like as somebody who was an immigrant, a woman founder, you got taken as seriously as a SaaS founder, or do you think it was harder for you to raise money and you basically had to prove it? That's a very good question. I never think of it that way. Certainly, I think it's more me. Mm. Um, not having a lot of the knowledge or the confidence as a first-time founder in the beginning. Ah. I wouldn't say it's because I'm a woman or I'm, I'm an immigrant. I do have a lot of the challenges, but just... For me as well to to understand how to waste money and also mm. being confidently doing it. And to be honest, I've been told before, if it's a male founder raising that, they'll be asking for let's say higher valuation. <laughs> just be a lot more a lot more confident in there. Well, I'm pretty practical, and I will ah. just I will just like I'm giving a little bit more of a conservative number. Ah. Then so that could have played to it. And over the years, I learned better on how to forecast, how to be able to like certainly doing that but i think in the beginning i i probably did not um i'll just present kind of like based on what realistically can be done versus like it. presenting a very high vision so i think it's more me like i'm learning on how to so in other words you were being upfront about what you know and giving a very realistic obtainable projection and i think some of your contemporaries might have been outlandish and ridiculous in their predictions i i think that's actually uh, directionally accurate with what I see in the marketplace. Um, but it does seem over time, people started to look at the results. And the results were so consistent, that the fundraising did get much easier for you in the last couple of years, correct? That's correct. I think so. So you learn to maybe have more ambitious projections. Uh, and what else did you learn about fundraising over all this time that we've been working together? I'm curious. I think it's really about the vision, right? Rather than the projection. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. If you paint, I think focus more on the vision. What could this be? And where do we get there? And obviously, because um, what investors are looking for is what could this be? And then, of course, what's your plan to get there? But mm. are you going to hit that plan or not? Of course, investors are aware of all the risks. But I think before I'm more like what I think is potentially achievable based on what I know now, rather than focusing more on the vision. So you don't, yeah. yeah, that that makes total sense to me because the projections the investors can do themselves, right? They have associates working for them, researchers. They can build models, but you as the founder have to have the vision, and they need to hear from you. Hey, how big can this get? You don't actually know this, but you were one of the test examples internally where I said, from now on, you know, having made one investment in Robinhood, one investment in Calm, basically, and one investment in Uber, I said, you know what, if we ever find other companies that are growing fast, I want to invest in every single round they do, if the company's growing. And you were growing so consistently. <laughs> I was just looking at the history of our investments. I don't know if you know this, but we've made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think we've made like, yeah, it looks like eight investments or something in the company. Every single round, we put a little bit more money in or took our pro rata or went super pro rata along the way. 
Um, what can you tell us about getting your existing investor base to keep investing in your company and how because you have gotten other investors on the cap table um, to keep investing as you go? I think it's transparency, good relationship, right? And just being very honest and transparent and where we are, what we are working on. You've been a, such a great supporter to us. You know, our up and downs when we were yeah. having some difficulties. We shared it with you as well. And this is what's yeah. going on. What are we going to do about it? This is our plan. Mm. And I think, um, over time, I'm very, very grateful and that a lot of our existing investors, including you, have supported us through every round, including times when it's kind of like harder to waste money. And you've always supported us, right? Yeah, let's keep going. You have confidence on us making it through and just persevering it through the bad times as well. I think your communication has been um, exemplary. Like you consistently told us what's going on with the investment, sent a quarterly update, a monthly update, whatever cadence it was. We knew we were going to get updates from you. And listen, they weren't always up and to the right. And there were times where you had employees who maybe didn't stick around or team members who didn't stick around. And there were some tough decisions that had to be made. Um, but we had those discussions, um, you know, in, in a very collaborative uh, method to keep the company growing. And some people didn't think that the business model would work. What gave you confidence that the business model would work? Because there were people who said, like, listen, I don't want to work at the company anymore. I don't believe this is going to work. You had employees leave and, you know, you had investors maybe who didn't want to keep investing aside from me and, you know, Tim Draper and some other folks who did. What, what were the things that gave you confidence when it looked like this was not going well, when you were going through those storm clouds that you just said, you know what, it, I'm going to keep going because you could have quit, right? I mean, yeah, I think I'm a little bit of guts, right? Hmm. A little bit of just like confidence that um, I'm closer to the customers and to the space because I talk to customers more. So I have a feeling that, you know, more like if we continue at keeping at it, if we continue building great products, this will work. It may take time because the market is so competitive. But if we continue building products that will solve customers' needs, you know, we'll get there. It may be a longer journey, but we will get there. I guess a little bit of that. And then second is just, I'm fortunate that we have a great team mm. that, you know, um, some do not believe. And I think we have trickle of people who are leaving, but there are some that have been with us for more than four or five years right? who are sticking together and oh, let's do this. Right. And I think, you know, normally startup, this team are the one that keeps us going. Right. I don't want mm. to also, um, let these people down. They believe in us. They believe in the company. They believe in the, in the, in the, in the customers. So just, we just keep each other going, basically. Yeah. I mean, when you see the customers being delighted and you do have people who are on the journey with you who want to be there, you focus on what's going well, right? You focus on what you can control and what's going well. And I always try to explain this to founders, you know, it's like being a, a, a captain of an airplane. You're a pilot. Okay, there's storm clouds. Okay, there's wind. Okay, but what can you control? Okay, I can control the speed of the plane. I can keep the plane level. Okay, I can keep my altitude. Okay, I know where the runway is. You know, like, there are things you can do to keep things going uh, in the right direction. I'm curious, what now that you've raised, you know, this incredible $30 million round, and the company is, you know, I mean, I think you've had moments where you either were profitable or could have been easily profitable. Now that the company is kind of stable, 
I'm curious uh, what the plan is now, you know, to get to that next phase to become a unicorn company and to and to keep growing. What are the challenges you now have to face, essentially, as a first time CEO, somebody who worked at Oracle, you're not new to the technology industry, but you are new to to being the captain of the ship. So what do you have to add now? What are you challenging yourself with for this next phase of the company? Certainly, I think you're right, right? In the early days, founders job is kind of like building the product and product market fit. And then now it starts evolving to like scaling the company mm-hmm. as the company has a lot more people aligning the team, mm-hmm. becoming challenging. And I think we are looking more for leadership team that can help us to align, grow, scale processes, teams. How do we make everyone to be more efficient mm-hmm. in executing? Yeah. Um, that becomes, so I think we are looking more of a leadership team to build out, to help us because in general, we started out going bottoms up and we also hire a lot of people from like junior people and keep promoting them up. But many mm. of people in our company do not have management experience, mm. right? Versus, and then they now are learning on the job, start managing people, start figuring out how to do that. And then now we are starting to bring in like professional managers, professional right. leaders who have done it before. So that's one part of the next scale of the company that we are focusing just on. Recruiting those big leaders who have done it before. Because let's face it, when you're starting a company and you're under-resourced, you may not have the money uh, to hire those top-level people because you can't compete against the people who are, you know, five years ahead of you, 10 years ahead of you. Or they might look at it as too small of an opportunity. Now you've proven it's not a small opportunity. Now you have an opportunity to to hire those Um and and that makes it a lot easier uh, for you as a CEO to figure all that out. I'm I'm curious. We you didn't have the benefit of things like uh, these services that will let you sell your monthly revenue for a year in advance. Pipe comes to mind, and a couple of other companies. So how ha- ha- have what do you think of those devices where now founders can sell their annual plans that are a monthly, you know, to to keep growth going. That's actually interesting. Um, right. You didn't have any opportunity to do that, if I remember correctly. Those things just didn't exist. You're talking about the non-dilutive financings, right? Yeah, the non-dilutive, like pipe.com will take your monthly SaaS revenue and say, okay, we'll give you a ye- we'll sell a year of it to somebody else in the marketplace for 92 cents on the dollar. So you give up eight cents, but you get the money now to invest in your team. I think we evaluated that a little bit, but at that point of time, it's just like the cost is too high mm. compared to, and um, in fact, I think a couple of people in our board, right, like, who was like pretty um, against that at that point of time. And then we haven't revisited again. Well, you don't need it now. You have a war chest. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't, t- totally don't need it now. Talk about um, running a company on mul- in multiple time zones, multiple contents continents you've had you you were i think international from the first year correct that's correct yes yeah so what's that like having teams in i guess um you know asia and in the united states working on the project i think it's becoming a strength at the same time there are challenges that comes with it okay. that we are figuring it out right the strength is it's literally so hard to hire in the u.s right now mm. the hiring market is so crazy and so hot right now that everyone is changing job <laughs> people are all um trying to figure out you know like everyone is hiring so it's really really hard to find people in the u.s 
we are now hire out of 22 different countries. 22 different countries, wow. Right. Um, and that that's probably growing, though we are trying to now consolidate across multiple different time zones to keep it simpler. Mm. But the the strength is that it's easier for us to attract talent and hire them faster than just competing in the US market. Where, However, the challenge is, and it's actually really interesting that we are able to keep, especially in product development, it's moving 24 hours, basically, because where people are picking it up and wow. right, the different time zone. Um, our product team is in Europe as well as Asia. But the challenge is collaboration and um, basically the speed of movement. Sometimes there's a lot of uh, difficulty in translation or passing messages along. So that's something that we are still continually trying to get better at. We are trying to move into potentially, a, for example, asynchronous communication because waiting mm-hmm. for a meeting to happen takes time between all of the different time zones. So we're like, how do we make things happen faster without a meeting face-to-face at the same time mimicking those um, interaction that as if a meeting happens. So those mm-hmm. are a couple of things that we're experimenting with to try to make this um, across time zone over many different countries collaboration happening better and faster so you, basically the sun never sets on lead iq like as the product as the sun goes down in america people are waking up in europe and then waking up in asia but they have to hand off these things they have to communicate with each other what are the tools that i mean obviously everybody uses slack or or some version of that or people use notion or project management software I'm curious if there are other things that are starting to work for you beyond the obvious ones like Zoom and Slack. So we are still using the typical Zoom, Slack, Notion, trying to communicate everything. But we are starting to evaluate. There are a couple of async um, communication tools being created right now. Mm. We're still ev- we are still ev- evaluating them. We're not sure yet whether any of these tools are going to be um, working out for us. But there are tools like Yak. YHC, ah. Twist, um, this is made by the Todoist people, right? In, it, that helps you to actually record messages with each mm. other and then leaving voice messages and ah. just, just asynchronously collaborate. So we are testing right. out different ways to collaborate asynchronously, actually, and then what's the best way? Yeah. So, I mean, people were using something like Loom to do a screencast, right? You record a video while you're going through a screen. I noticed inside of Slack now, there's two new features. I started using them. We and other people in the team started using them. You can record, which I think is similar to Yak, where you can uh, re- record your screen. So if it was a product discussion, you say, hey, look, this, this screen is breaking when I'm on this size monitor and it doesn't look right. And you can take some notations, but you're actually talking on it. And then the one that's been real, I don't know if you've used it yet, is Huddle. The Huddle's on Slack. Have you used that yet where you just click a button? So in the bottom left of Slack, there's a button called a huddle and you click it and then it turns on your headset, but you don't have to start talking. So you can go to a channel, invite everybody in a channel. And so I did it this morning at launch and I just said, hey, good morning, everybody, because we're not in the same office anymore. We're all working from home now. And uh, I just started as people jumped in and maybe eight out of the 18 people here at the company or nine were in the room within a couple of minutes. And I just went through each one and just said, Hey, how was your weekend? How are you doing? What are you working on? Anybody have questions for me? You don't have to turn your camera on. So you don't have to be camera ready. You can just listen in. 
your microphone goes off by default. So you're just kind of listening. And then it's kind of like just be, you know, when you were at like a, a series of cubicles or an open workspace, you could kind of just talk to each other, but you wouldn't talk too much because you don't want to interrupt people, but you also like to talk once in a while. And it's good for people to overhear stuff, right? It's kind of like that. Yeah, I kind of like it. Um, yeah, because I think the Zoom fatigue is real, right? Most yes. people are now having too many Zoom meetings and sometimes you just want to turn off the video and just listening it. You're right, totally. Yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check out Yak as well. It, I mean, basically, they're kind of like a feed where you put in your notes and your surveys or whatever, but it, it does seem like structuring Slack a little bit. Slack got everything out of email. Now you have like Slack becomes oppressive. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't believe that Slack sold to Salesforce. I mean, it felt to me like Slack could have become the next Microsoft or if they just kept building it, but I guess they got offered too high of a price. Um, <laughs> you've certainly had times when you could have moved on, maybe sold the company, um, but you keep building. Uh, tell me your thinking as the founder of the company about selling or going long and building a big, important company. I think we're going along, right? We notice uh, basically a void here in the top of the funnel platform that no one is building, which is why we went out there, we raised, right? We pitched this vision of we can build this top of the funnel platform. This, and we are going out and to build this right now. We are going to use this money to continue building, to build the right team, to build uh, a new product. And yeah, we are, we are, it's still just the beginning of the journey for us, I guess. The CBSB is a start of a new journey. Yeah. It really is. And uh, it's been great to be on the journey with you. Just fantastic to see your success. And I, uh, I, I absolutely knew from the beginning when I first met you and you explained the product to me. Um, and it really clarified a lot of my thinking because at that period in time, I was a couple of years, maybe five years into angel investing and now I'm whatever in year 11. When I met you, I was like, you know, the founders who really understand customers and really can build great products are the ones who win. Uh, and it really got me to clarify my thinking over time that there were some founders who really understood customers and could build a great product. The only piece I've really added to that flywheel in my thesis is, uh, can they build a team, right? And so when you think about it at its core, what is a great startup? Well, if a founder and can build a team that builds a great product that delights customers, they have more money to build a better team, a bigger team, have more resources to build a better product, which then delights customers more and the flywheel gets going. And it was so obvious to me when we met that you had at least the ability to build a great product and you really understood the, uh, really understood the, the customers. Uh, any advice to people who are just getting started out of how to, make it happen when you don't have that many resources? Yeah, I think... If you can remember back to those days when you were super resource constrained, like two years ago, three years ago, <laughs> five years ago. I think our secret sauce was two, right? We were relying on the customers, get the revenue from the customers rather than relying on investors. Mm. Part of it, we were, we were like, you know, as I mentioned early, earlier, I just sort of like found it easier to convince customers to buy our product than convince investors in investing <laughs> in us because I, I was not good at pitching, right? So I'm like, yeah, let's just build the product and find people to pay. Yeah. So that's one. And then number two is, um, I guess we have also been really capital efficient by building the team 
capital efficiently through building this um, people outside the U.S. and in every different countries. So that was mm. our sec- our second ways of like being able to raise um, very little money and continue going. Yeah, see, this is a critically important insight. You know, the the companies that are capital efficient and who um, are forced to make money from customers become stronger companies. They have better DNA uh, because the their skill set does not become raising money. Their skill set becomes selling and delighting customers on a vision for the product, right? And it's great that you've added the ability to raise money just really well the last couple of rounds. But my God, I meet so many founders now who are so good at raising money, but they just can't sell and they can't get their product to grow. And um, it's uh, sometimes that necessity and that hardness where you to get money needed to get it from customers is a major breakout and being capital efficient is just so, so important. Uh, Listen, May, congratulations on the most recent round. I know you're hiring, you're hiring across all time zones. So for people around the world that are looking for a great job and you know, a pre unicorn company, but that is a lot more stable and a lot more uh, capital um, rich at this time who can, you know, afford great employees, where should they look to find jobs at lead IQ? Yeah, um, go to leadiq.com slash careers, mm. right? Come or email me may at leadiq.com. M-E-I. M-E-I. That's right. At leadiq.com. I love to talk to um, people who wants to join us in our startup journey. It's a journey. So Enjoy it. Yeah, enjoy it. (laughs) I think that's another important thing uh, that people forget, you know, uh, especially through some of the tough board meetings we had in the city. And it was, you know, not a good situation. Um, And and the struggles, if you just look at it as a journey, and not a destination, you know, there will be these great moments along the way, but just enjoy every day coming to work, refine the product, delighting customers, and uh, it makes the job a lot easier. My God, what a, a great experience has been to watch the company grow. And um, thank you for letting us be. I think we were we your first investors or very first investor, Jason. You you took us on after a cold email, actually. You emailed me cold? Is that what happened? Yes. We called How did you find out about me? You saw the podcast or something? I don't remember. It was to um the Or I was doing the accelerator and you just emailed me or no, I think an event? the inside newsletter, you were just, ah, yeah, I was doing the inside newsletter and you just emailed me called. Yeah, exactly. And then I you, mean, you sent us like, come by for coffee. And then we went ah. for coffee and then you took us on as um, a, a member of the launch incubator. It's, I mean, it's very important for me to remember because as I've gotten more successful and the bigger organization, my ability to just randomly say yes to people and have coffee it gets harder because there's so many companies I have to work with that are like yours that are getting big or grin or, you know, name the company. Um, but to people who are starting out as investors, uh, angel investors that are in the syndicate, one of the best things you can do is answer your email and go for a cup of coffee with a founder and hear their vision and just give them some support and time. Even if you don't wind up investing, maybe you can give them a couple pieces of good advice. You, you know, it could steer them in the right direction. And I'm not saying waste people's time, but it really is important. These are relationship-based situations when you're investing, and founders need early support. And just as I'm training new investors, I always tell them, rule number one, never underestimate anyone. You came in and had a literal Google sheet 
plug. Do you remember the Google Sheet plugin? And I think when we met you, we only have two customers, two. You had two customers paying like a hundred bucks or they had paid 500 bucks. It wasn't reoccurring. And I was like, eh, you know, good enough. I, th and I think this is the advantage for young investors or young firms, you know, new firms. Remember, if you're a new firm, the older firms get so busy and they're used to things at such a scale that they don't take modest traction seriously anymore. You know, like this is the absolute mistake of the big venture, you know, uh, big venture capitalists, successful venture capitalists is they forget that every journey starts with those first couple of steps. And if you can help people get up the first couple of rungs of the ladder or help them up the first couple of steps, that's where the magic is. That's why I've always tried to stay in the early stages. That's why we just launched this new founder university course where we're going to teach people for 12 weeks how to build an MVP because we've seen people with MVPs like you change the world. So um, it's just so great. Man, I'm so happy for you as a founder and your team. Uh, and thanks again for letting us be on the journey. And we'll see you all next time on this week's service. Bye-bye.